1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, uh, Paul is continuing his instructions on order in church, order in our worship services. And he started off with order in prayer, concerning prayer. We remember it brought and drew in uh, the issue of customs. And then there was the order in observing the Lord's Supper. And now the exercise of spiritual gifts. And so a spiritual gift is something that we talked about the last time we were together and we defined it. We kind of talked about what it is and what it isn't. And we talked about some of the gifts. But um, uh, a spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. It has a specific purpose. The purpose is for the benefit of the church. That's a spiritual gift. It's a manifestation or a demonstration of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life for the benefit of the church. Now this demonstration or this manifestation of the Holy Spirit is described as a gift. And this chapter, in chapter 13 and 14, so these are spiritual gifts. The way that the Holy Spirit demonstrates Himself, manifests Himself in the life of a believer is for the benefit of the church and it is described as a gift. So I'll draw your attention to verse 7 there in chapter 12. This is what it says. It's a demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. And so from that verse and other verses that we looked at last time we were together, we see that every believer has at least one spiritual gift. All of us do. At least one. And um, while Scripture is not definitive on when this occurs, when these gifts are actually given to us, it stands to reason that this would occur at the new birth, when we are born again. Uh, there are some indications of places, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12.31, 1 Timothy 4.14, 2 Timothy 1.6. These are examples where it looks like spiritual gifts can be granted to a believer later. But certainly at the new birth, there's this initial presentation of gifts that become to, that begin to be manifested in the life of a believer. Um, and again, we want to remember that we're talking about people who are born again. Um, we're not talking about people who just go to church um, or interested in spiritual things. Uh, a lot of people go to church and they are just trying to be a better person. They are trying to be a good moral person or contributing to society. They're trying to be a good example for their kids or uh, just they're going because it's what their parents wanted to do. There's all kinds of reasons people go to church. But we're talking specifically about people who have been born again. You know, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a, a qualification there. Something drastic has to happen. And I've talked about this line that is your life. There's a, a dot at the beginning when you were born. And there's a dot at the end when you die. And there's a line in between, and that's your life. But at some place on that line, there has to be another dot when you were born again. In some religious circles, um, and I, I'm not trying to pick on anybody really, I'm really not, but in Roman Catholicism, for example, uh, salvation is viewed as a lifelong journey. And it's all about your connectedness with the church, being in good standing with the church, doing the things that the church wants you to do, uh, participating and observing the sacraments. You know, 
uh, all of these things that you do to try to stay in good standing until you die. And when you die, God assesses all of this and decides if you're going to go to heaven or not, or if you have to go to purgatory and work off a little bit of bad. And so in that mindset, salvation is this long process where there's really no certainty about your future and your destiny. But this is not what Jesus teaches us. In John chapter 3, verse 5, he says that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There has to be the new birth. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts, we are talking about people who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And a lot of things happen all at once when that occurs, but there's got to be that new birth. And if there's a question in your mind that this has happened, that's not good. You need to get that nailed down like right away, like today, now. This needs to be something that you don't put off. And uh, I've talked about before how when God is knocking on your heart, that's when you're supposed to respond because if, if you ignore Him or resist God's movements in your heart and you, you ball up, you think, oh, not today, not today, I, I'm going fishing, you know, whatever, and you say no, well, He's going to move on. And you don't know when or if He's going to come back around to your heart. So that's why Paul says today is the day of salvation. So when you feel God squeezing your heart, that's when He expects you to respond, and that's, that's your opportunity it's not something to pass by. And so you hear about people squeezing the, pin, the, the pew with their hands, you know, anything but going forward at the end of a service and stuff. And this is not the way we want to be. We want to respond positively to God's love and, and His drawing you to Himself. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're talking about those of us who have asked Jesus to come into our heart and we're trusting in Him and in Him alone for our salvation. I'm not trusting in my long walk with God. If I was doing that, I'd be in bad shape because I'm not real proud of my long walk with God. My journey is not that whoopee. It might look like it to you right now because I'm the one up here talking, but trust me, my journey is not that great. I'm not trusting in that. I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me on the cross. And so this is us, the church. Now, we also talked last time that spiritual gifts and natural abilities and talents kind of work together. They work in concert an awful lot of the time. But they are different. You know, we talk about how everyone that is born is born with natural abilities. There are things, talents that we all have. Well, spiritual gifts are things that are endowed to you at the new birth when you're born again. You see, only Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit only Christians have been baptized into the body of Christ. Only Christians have been entrusted with spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the church. They are different. They are distinct. And then last time, well, we also looked at a, at a list of spiritual gifts. And uh, there's a number of places in the New Testament where they are listed. Uh, no list is the same. Sometimes one thing's mentioned and another time it's not. And it's kind of specific to the context of what the author is talking about. And so it gives us the impression that maybe not all of the spiritual gifts have even been mentioned. But I would suspect that they have for the most part, especially when we look at how the church functions uh, through church history. So it's probably this list of about 20 spiritual gifts. 
And I'll tell you the places. Uh, I don't have them up there on the screen for you, but Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, there's a listing of gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we're studying now, there's a listing there in the beginning of the chapter, verses 8 through 10. And then at the end of the chapter, there's another listing of some other gifts. Uh, Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 9 through 11. This is where these places are where we draw out this listing of gifts. um, We talk about each, each one of those a little bit. And then finally, we... Uh, we were faced with the challenge that God presents us with, and that is that uh, God wants us to recognize how he has empowered us for service. He wants us to recognize what he's doing in our lives. And so how do you find out what your spiritual gifts are? Well, when you're a new baby Christian, uh, it may just come bursting out of you right off the bat. But as you search this out, one thing to do is ask God. It's not a secret to Him, and He doesn't want it to be a secret to you. And allow Him to to give you wisdom in this area and to direct you and to speak to your heart. And one of the things you can do is you can ask yourself, what do you like to do? You know, if you're not real crazy about going into the jungle, then that's probably not your calling. You know, you don't have to make it be your calling. What do you enjoy to do? What do you not enjoy doing? Uh, there was a there's a, a school that was specifically for animals, all kinds of animals, and they taught them how to run and climb and fly and swim. And there was a duck, and he was a very good swimmer and a pretty good pretty good at flying, but he was terrible at running and climbing. And so you know what the school did? They neglected those abilities. And they spent all their time concentrating on helping this duck learn how to climb and run. But it was to no avail because he was not built for that. And they actually had to remove him from school because he just couldn't run and climb. So I think we can all see the picture there. Another thing is noticing. and that's uh, Do people notice strengths, abilities, gifting in your life? Are they, do, do people talk to you about it? Um, those people on those first few episodes of American Idol that try to sing, you wonder, you know, what what's happening there, you know. Um, you wonder if they really think they're good or if, I don't know what's happening there, but, you know, pay attention to what people are telling you. You know, if you're not a good singer, then people are probably not telling you how great of a singer you are, you know. And uh, so these are things that we want to do. We want to we want to be observant. We want to seek God's will, seek God's direction, um, ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate this for us, so we can kind of see what He wants us to do and where our strengths and abilities are. Uh, we're going to like it. We're going to enjoy to do it. And other people should kind of notice those strengths in our lives. And then the final thing is the most important one, and that is to try, to explore, give it a chance, give it a go, try to do something. So this brings us to our text, and uh, um, we're going to read the last time we were together, we read the first 11 verses, and so we're going to read those again, and then we're going to move into a couple of verses past that. We're going to read all the way through verse 13. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. About matters of the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. 
You know how when you were pagans, you were led to dumb idols being led astray. Therefore, I am informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God is active in everyone and everything. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of languages, to another interpretation of languages. But one and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each one as he wills. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is what we see being described here in verse 13. For we were all baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Now this, is, this baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that John the Baptist predicted in the Gospels. We remember him saying, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist was looking to something that was going to happen into the future. And Jesus predicted the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, after he had been crucified, after he rose from dead, after he made appearances to the many, and just before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to baptize them. And he's even more specific than that. He says, not many days from now. So in Acts, 5, uh, Acts 1, uh, verse 5, he says, uh, this is Jesus. He says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when we look at what happened, we know that he's referring to the day of Pentecost. That was the beginning of the church. That was the point when the Holy Spirit began to indwell believers. That was the point when the body of Christ, when believers began to be baptized into Christ's body, this collection. This is the church. Um, uh, we know this is when the, the church began simply because Jesus pointed to something that was going to happen not many days from now. And of course, that was in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We remember what happened when uh, God authenticated this, uh, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit with, uh, with miracles. People were speaking in other languages. There was flaming tongues above people's heads. There was a mighty rushing wind. And it turned Jerusalem upside down. It was a miracle. And everybody saw it. It was unbelievable. And people were thinking, how are these people speaking those languages? It was a miracle. It was authenticating. It was identifying the beginning of the church. Uh, when you get to Acts chapter 10, Peter is instructed to go to the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Gentile. And this is when Gentiles began to be baptized into the body of Christ. So now the body of Christ is Jew and Gentile. And we remember Peter saw the vision of the, the meat that was forbidden in the Mosaic law. And he said, no, I can't eat that, God. And God said, no, I want you to eat this food now. And he was trying to tell him, no, the Gentiles are going to be grafted in now too. And so now he's in Acts chapter 10. He's in Cornelius' house. And they believe and are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they have these same evidences of this baptism. 
that happened on the day of Pentecost. So later in the next chapter, when Peter is trying to explain to the Jewish people, the Jewish believers, what has happened, he said, what happened to them is what happened to us at the beginning. You see, the day of Pentecost. Um, in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, the Gentiles, just as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord. I remember what Jesus said, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So let's not miss out on what we're talking about here. You've got John the Baptist pointing to the future. You've got Jesus pointing to the future. And then you've got Peter looking back. And it's all these arrows are going back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of the New Testament church. So, uh, uh, something, so this is something that happens to us at the new birth. So if, if, salvation, uh, if salvation is a diamond and has many facets, then you begin to see that when a person is saved, all of these incredible theological truths and things happen in a believer's life in an instant. Um, uh, instantly at the new birth, we receive an inheritance. We are adopted into God's family. Uh, the, the, the ransom has been paid in full. We are justified. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. We're sanctified. And at the end of, uh, at the end of Romans chapter 8, we find out in the mind of God, we're already glorified. Um, I'm not glorified yet, but I'm going to be. And uh, 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 in God's mind, it's a done deal. Because when He saves you, He saves you. You're eternally secure. It's a done deal. And so all of these things happen when a person gets saved. Well, here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we also find out that another thing that happens is that we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it says that we are all made to drink of the one Spirit. And so this is picturing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this is another thing that happens and we also know that uh, from Ephesians 4.30 that another thing, cool thing that happens is that He seals us. The Holy Spirit is our down payment, our guarantee of our inheritance. And in Ephesians 4 there it tells us that we are sealed until the day of redemption. So my point is, is that when a person pl places their faith in Christ and experiences this new birth, all of these amazing things happen all at once. Now, in charismatic circles... Uh, believers seek a second blessing. They're looking for something to happen after salvation. A, ne a next level of spiritual reality, a next level of spiritual awareness, a new experience in the charismatic circles. And they describe this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. To them, this is something that doesn't happen at salvation. It's later on. And in those circles, believers are, are encouraged to earnestly desire this experience. So much so that there's a lot of peer pressure. If, uh, if you haven't done this, then you're missing out. You're lacking something. You're lacking a fullness of the Spirit. So there's a lot of peer pressure. You can imagine if you're in a charismatic circle in a church and you have never had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in tongues, you kind of feel like the oddball. There's a lot of peer pressure there.
you know, for the, the typical Baptist to them, uh, that doesn't follow the, that direction, uh, to them they, they may look down on us, or they may pity us because we're missing out. To them we're like the, the people who only believe in science, you know. We just don't get it. But this is not what the Bible teaches us, you guys. This is, a, this is an error. Uh, it's sincerely an error, but it is an error. They need to divide the word a little more accurately, unfortunately. I want you to pay attention. Look at your Bible there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. The Bible tells us that all of us have been baptized into the, Holy, into the body of Christ. All of us have. Every single one of us. And this is spoken of in the past tense. It's something that has already occurred. It happens at the new birth. Romans 8 9 tells us that if, you have, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not in Christ. Romans 8 9. This is something that happened in the past. If we just look at the church of Corinth here in this letter, uh, if you were to go to chapter 1, verse 7, it says that in the church of Corinth, every single spiritual gift was in possession. The church had every single spiritual gift in operation in this first century New Testament church in Corinth. Every single spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. And then verse 13 of chapter 12, it tells us that every single one of them had been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. At the end of chapter 12, it tells us that not everyone has the same gifts. There's a series of rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 12. It says, are all prophets, do all do miracles? Are all teachers, do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak in languages? Do all interpret? The answer is no. So right then and there you know that not every Christian is going to be speaking in tongues. All believers have been baptized into the body of Christ, past tense. All gifts were present in the church in Corinth. All of them have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. But they did not all possess the same gifts. Here's the point. Instead of this being some new level of spirituality, God is wanting us to see that in Christ, we're all standing on equal footing. We're all, we're all one, and we're very different. Each one of us is very different. We're gifted differently, and we come from different backgrounds and everything, but we're all one, and we're all equal. The preacher is not more important or valuable than somebody else. I may be up in front. I may be the guy that everybody looks at too much, but I'm not any more important than anybody else. We're all the same. You've all heard the phrase that the, the ground at the, the, at the foot of the cross is, is what is that saying, level. Um, in Sunday school, we were uh, looking at, uh, studying the, the third chapter of Colossians, and, and uh, it was emphasized again there. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to us. This is, this is in Sunday school. Uh, chapter 3 of Colossians Beginning in, in, uh, in, beginning in verse 10, he says, We have put on the new man, that's the new creation, the new birth, who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of his creator. Verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. So God's point is, 
that, and it actually says this here in the text in verse 13 there, it says that uh, we all are, have equal footing. There's no competition. There's, no, there's not somebody here who has achieved some higher level than you. This, this is not what the Bible teaches at all. It says that, that regardless of your nationality, regardless of your social standing, we're all the same. We're all equal. It says whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, you see, and in the New Testament church, uh, very early on, this was a problem because they had white and black people. No. But they had Hellenistic Jews and real strict Jews, Orthodox Jews. And they had uh, Samaritans. And wow, even Gentiles. You know. And later when the Roman Empire was persecuting the church, you had people who had renounced their faith under pressure and then repented and wanted to come back in and, and uh, they would sit on the pew next to somebody whose dad was dead because he refused. And all of these things that challenge us to be united. But in the, at, but in the cross, in the body of Christ, we are all equal. This is very important for each one of us to understand that no one is more important than the next person. And this is what the remainder of this chapter is going to try to teach us. So let's begin reading in, in, uh, in chapter 12, and uh, beginning verse 12. And I know I've already read the first two verses, but we'll read them again just to get the, the content. So, for as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, in spite of this, it still belongs to the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, in spite of this, it still belongs to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were, were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the parts, each one of them, in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Now there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor again the, he, the head to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, all the more, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary. And those parts of the body that we think to be less honorable, we clothe these with great honor, and our, our, our unpresentable parts have a better presentation. But our presentable parts have no need of clothing. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has placed these in the church. He's going to give us another list. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles and gifts of healing, helping, managing, various kinds of languages. But are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in languages? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts. And I'm going to show you an even better way. In verses 12 through 14, it is emphasizing that there is diversity within the body of Christ, but there is also unity. 
This is the way the church is supposed to function. And this is the way it will function if everything is going as it should. But we can see here that there are some members of the body in this first century church in Corinth and maybe even in this room who feel insignificant of less value. There in verses 15 and 16, twice, it says, I am not a part of the body. They don't feel like they're important. He says, but in spite of this, in spite of how they feel, they really are just as important. So the way you feel may not be reality. What really matters is, is how important you are to the, is, is for the body to recognize your value. What a shame it would be if we thought that somebody here wasn't important or their contributions to our church wasn't important. Wouldn't that be awful? And it would be so awful if you felt that way. And so Paul is saying, you may feel that way, but it's not the truth. You know, we all know people um, that have great potential and they don't live up to it. They get scared or they get sidetracked. They become self-destructive. They have these, this low self-esteem and it's preventing them from being the person that they could be. It's like that girl in, in junior high that was pretty, but she always walked around talking about how ugly her hair was or her legs or something, you know, because she's just starving for someone to pay her compliments because her self-esteem was so low. And you look at her and you think, I mean, some of my daughters, you know, I think they're all really pretty, you know, and, and uh, they trash their bodies, talk about, the, they don't like this about themselves. And I'd be like, are you kidding me? This is what is happening when believers in a church feel insignificant. You know, a, a puzzle is, a, is great, but nobody wants to, to spend all that time putting a puzzle together and then there'd be a piece missing. You know, the dog ate one of the pieces. Every piece is so important. You need every single one of them. And no piece is the same. And each piece only fits in one place. You know, sometimes when we see others in church serving, we think that there's, you know, nothing left for us to do. We've been reduced to being spectators. All we're left to do is observe. That is not what God wants. God expects each one of us to recognize our spiritual gifts and use them. Find a way to use your spiritual gifts. We can't all do the same things. And so this is the way God has fashioned the body. And uh, if, if there's any problem that you have with another member because you wish you could do what they're doing or you're not happy with what God's gifted you with or something, your real issue is not with the other members of the body, it's with God. Multiple times in this chapter, it tells us that God is the one who made these decisions. Look at verse 11, chapter 12. It says, But one and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as He wills. Verse 18, But now God has placed each one of the parts in one body just as He wanted. Verse 24, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that members would have the same concern for each other. 
And it closes in verse 28. It says, and God has placed these in the church. So we want to remember what we talked about at the very beginning, that we, you have to ask God. And you have to ask yourself, what do you enjoy? What are other people noticing in my life? And then try. So if there's, if there's something that you think that you can do that would contribute to this local church, but that spot's filled, well, you've got to start thinking outside of the box. Start doing something new. Maybe a, a home Bible study. Maybe a van ministry. Maybe you want to go knock on some doors. Maybe you'd like to do something for folks in a nursing home. Maybe you'd like to do something for the ladies here in the church. Develop the, the ladies' ministry. There's all kinds of things. It's, it's actually infinite. There's endless opportunities. But you have to think about this, pray about it, and then apply yourself. Try. Give it a go. That's God's challenge. Now in verse 21, it kind of switches gears because now we're starting to see that there are certain people who think they're better than others. They feel superior. So they feel superior to the point that they don't think some people are important. And so Paul makes the argument. He says, well, what good is a hand if it's not attached to an arm? If there's a hand laying on the floor, what good is it? Each member of the body only finds purpose and meaning and value when it is connected to the body. You've heard people say they don't have to go to church to worship God. That's just not true. The book of Hebrews tells us that it's the habit of some to not go to church. They got out of the habit. But that's not the right way. It's not the best way. You've all heard the story of a, a coal. If you take it out of the fire and you leave it there on the, on the fireplace mantle, hopefully your mantle's not made of wood if you're going to put a coal on it, but it will grow cold and turn black. But if you put it back in the fire, it gets hot again, turns red and orange. All right, so that's the picture. We need each other. You need to be in the church. God wants you to serve Him in the church. And so while everybody is looking at this big, beautiful, bouncing blue eye, there's a heart that's pumping blood to the eye. There are lungs that are oxygenating the blood that's going to the eye. There are organs. There are other organs that are cleaning the blood. There is no eye without a heart. And there is no hand without an arm. God is gently saying to us, I realize, I understand that you do not feel important. I understand that you do not feel noticed or appreciated. Let me be the one who appreciates you. And I'll tell you a little secret. In time, you'll find out that people do notice. William Carey is a very famous missionary. He's spent his life in India. And uh, he had a good friend named Andrew Fuller. And Andrew Fuller and him worked in concert together. And they both knew that you couldn't have one with the, uh, without the other. Mr. Fuller was the one who organized and raised funds and money. Took care of things at home to support William Carey while he was abroad. William Carey said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. There will always be people who have more, people who are better, who have better things, more things, better abilities. But 
instead of making yourself miserable, Paul is saying, I'm going to show you an even better way. And the better way is chapter 13. John MacArthur uh, talked about how Paul always wrote with a secretary. And uh, in, in the book of Colossians, which we're studying, the very last, the very last couple of verses of the, of the letter of Colossians, Paul said, I'm writing this to you in my own hand. You know, we don't know what Paul's affirmities were, but uh, he had a hard time writing. And a very smart, very educated man. It wasn't because he wasn't, uh, but physically, couldn't write. And so he, uh, you, wouldn't that manuscript be wonderful to have now? And just to see the, the penmanship, the beautiful penmanship of the secretary, and then the, the scrawled writing of Paul. I'm writing this to you in my own hand. Well, John MacArthur made the point that uh, you're reading through 1 Corinthians and you're reading all of these problems and all of this instruction and all the way through the very end of chapter 12. And then all of a sudden, chapter 13. This magnificent, beautiful, abrupt shift and change. John MacArthur said, I am sure that Paul's secretary dropped his quill as the beautiful words were falling from his lips. Chapter 13. If I speak the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned and do not have love, I've gained nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not conceited, it does not act improperly, it's not selfish, it's not provoked, it does not keep a record of wrongs, it finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecy, they will come to an end. As for languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For right now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And word for love in this chapter is agape. Different kinds of love, words for love in, in the Greek language. This is the word that means self-sacrificing love. It's going to cost you something. This is central to what Paul is teaching us. This is central to the ministry. This is central to marriage. It is central to church life. To the point that uh, nothing we really do is worth anything if it's not motivated by love. Alistair Begg is a, a famous preacher and I was listening to him talk about this and he drew our attention to uh, beginning there in verse 4. And he suggests that we 
recognize that this chapter is talking about Jesus. It's describing him to the T. And we remember that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is just Jesus helps us to understand who God is as a person. What a great person he is. That's, that's what Jesus does for us. It helps us to understand this incredible God. And uh, this is describing him. And so beginning in verse 4, he suggests that we remove the word love and put in the word Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He's not boastful. He's not conceited. He doesn't act improperly. He's not selfish. He's not provoked. And then he challenges us to insert, instead of love, the word, the name of our church. To see if we do that. The Liberty Missionary Baptist Church is patient. The Liberty Missionary Baptist Church is kind. The Liberty Missionary Baptist Church does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not conceited. It doesn't act improperly. It's not selfish. And then he asks us to take the word love out and to put in our own name. What I like to do is instead is put your names in there instead of mine. It makes me a lot more comfortable. I'm closing. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5 it tells us to walk in the Spirit and to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so when all that we do is motivated by love, as we exercise spiritual gifts, as we walk in the Spirit, we're going to bear the fruits of the Spirit. If and when all that we do is motivated by love. So let's pray.